Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Off the coast of Alaska sit 14 large volcanic islands and 55 smaller ones. Most of the territory belongs to the United States and some to Russia. Known as the Aleutian Islands, they act as a border between the Bering Sea and the Pacific Ocean. The islands form the northern part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, where earthquakes and volcanic eruptions are likely to happen due to friction between the tectonic plates below, which created the islands in the first place. 57 volcanoes are dispersed throughout the islands. On April 1st of 1946, nearly everyone was sleeping when the 8.6 magnitude earthquake struck. The Alaskans reported no injuries, and though it had shaken them, they went on with their day. No one knew that the quake had caused the ocean floor to rise, or that the real damage was yet to come. Five hours later, an 130-foot wave slammed into Unimac Island, taking out everything in its path crushed the reinforced steel lighthouse sitting 30 feet above sea level. Inside were five people on watch. They most likely saw the approaching wall of water, but had no time to react and were killed instantly. 2,400 miles to the south, 20 students and four teachers combed the shoreline on Laupahoehoe Point, a beautiful peninsula along the northeast shore of the island of Hawaii on Hilo Bay. The tide had receded unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Hundreds, if not thousands, of fish flopped around on the sand. Boats were stranded. No one knew what the fast-receding water meant. Unaware of the danger offshore, children delighted in picking up the vibrantly colored fish. Teachers were puzzled, but didn't see any reason to worry. Out in the Pacific, Captain Wickland of the U.S. Navy saw the tsunami first. But despite his warning, Hilo was unprepared. From his position on the bridge of the ship, 46 feet above sea level, he had a too-close view of what he described as a monster wave over two miles long. That wave and subsequent surges destroyed a third of the city of Hilo. In Laupahoehoe, 60-foot waves slammed ashore where the children scooped up the fish on the sand. It crushed the schoolhouse, killing everyone inside. The waves even shoved a bridge 300 feet from the river it crossed. Waves as tall as a 13-story building were reported. 96 people died on the island of Hawaii that day, and 159 in the Hawaiian Islands combined. The property damage reached $26 million, worth over a quarter of a billion today. In Half Moon Bay, California, 14-foot surges pummeled the shoreline. In Santa Cruz, the surges killed a person and as far away as Chile, the waves damaged fishing boats. Despite technology that gives us earlier warnings, we don't always look at the social disaster underneath. And 
Sometimes we ignore the signs altogether. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. In early America, colonists looking for a fresh start were drawn to Wisconsin's rich natural resources. Immigrants tired of East Coast life in crowded cities, where the few jobs that could be found didn't pay fair wages or treat them equally, headed west. An abundance of minerals and lumber fostered several industries, presenting them with the opportunities to make a good life. Mining had made Wisconsin one of the primary sources of lead in the world, though they also mined iron, zinc, and copper. Many found the area the perfect place for farming, while others turned to logging. It was a good life. The town of Peshtigo in Marinette County sits just off the western shore of Green Bay. While French colonists arrived in the area in the late 1780s, it wasn't until 1838, when the first sawmill went into operation, that the town became prosperous. Norwegian, Swedish, English, German, and Irish immigrants made Peshtigo their home. The seemingly endless forests around Lake Michigan were perfect for the hardwoods that made houses, furniture, and ships. The town's proximity to Chicago and railroads provided the residents with a way to transport lumber and earn a steady stream of income. It wasn't without risk, though. The logging and lumber industry wasn't well regulated, and safe forestry practices were non-existent. No care was taken on what to cut down, and loggers stripped the land, leaving underbrush to bake in the sun. Scraps and refuse were dumped into tinder piles, making fires a constant threat. They didn't change their practices, though, and in May of 1869, a fire broke out in nearby Ashland, killing three people. The local papers reported that a spark from a worker's pipe had ignited dry tinder on the docks. Another fire broke out in the same town four years later, killing four men. With the need for more lumber came more railroads. Workers laying tracks took out large swaths of trees, leaving them discarded in random piles nearby, and despite the fires, no one gave it much thought. Like other cities and towns, Peshtigo's buildings were made of wood. With such an abundance, they even used wood chips to pave their streets. The summer of 1871 had been one of the hottest and driest summers on record. A few small wildfires had started in the area, though, as usual, no one worried much. Most of them fizzled out on their own. That changed on October 8th, when strong winds started early in the morning and continued most of the day. Residents noticed the increase in dust and debris, making some of them a bit nervous, while others scoffed at their concerns and went about their day as usual. One of the town's 1,700 residents was Father Peter Pernin, who had moved to Peshtigo in 1869. As he walked down the street near his church that day, he passed children playing, young couples walking, and town folk out playing yard games with friends. None gave the clouds of smoke billowing above the forest treetops a second glance. Such sights were a part of life in logging communities. There had never been a fire they hadn't handled. Though the townspeople were acting perfectly normal, Pernin was uneasy. He couldn't shake the feeling that something darker loomed just over the horizon. He continued his visits to his congregation up until around 7 p.m. that evening. The wind that had been blowing earlier picked up. The gusts felt stronger now and more frequent. 
As he walked back to his home, he couldn't help but realize how quiet everything had become. No birds chirped or sang in the fading light. He paused and listened. Then he heard it, a faint roar off in the distance. Above the tree line, traces of red etched the sky. Despite the town's calm demeanor and dismissal of the nearby fire, he rushed home, certain that something terrible was about to happen. When he reached his house, Pernan went to the stable and set his horse loose. Once free, he hoped the animal's instincts would kick in and it would run off to a safer place. Next, he began digging a trench to bury his valuables. As he dug, the air became increasingly oppressive, making breathing difficult. He kept digging anyway. After a while, the silence gave way to the roar he'd heard earlier. To him, it sounded like several trains approaching a station in a thunderstorm. A crimson glow grew brighter over the tree line. Pernin was about out of time. He made several trips inside to fetch books, clothing, his dog, and some items from the church. When he looked at the sky again, the fire was evident. With deafening pops, blasts sent sparks shooting into the sky. Convinced that the air itself would catch fire, he set off to the river. Thinking that heard a train and knowing they never ran that late at night, people stepped outside of their homes to see what the noise was. Greeted by flames, they rushed to action without taking in the breadth of the fire. Women ran to get small children from their beds while men and boys set up a fire brigade. They had a fire department, so to speak. It amounted to one horse, a wagon, and a steam pump, hardly sufficient for a logging town. An ominous black cloud covered the evening sky, blotting out the moon and stars. Ash fell like snow. With each gust of wind, dirt and soot made it difficult to breathe. The heat grew so intense that those fighting the fire could hardly keep their eyes open. The wind swirled in a virtual tornado of debris and flames. Realizing that fighting the fire was futile, people fled toward the river. Some panicked and ran off into the forest. The poor visibility caused people and wagons to collide on the roads. Some of the residents became so overwhelmed and terrified that they stood paralyzed in the fire's path. A few ran to open fields, thinking that would save them. The thick smoke overtook them and they dropped to the ground, coughing and choking. Father Pernan tripped over something and realized it was a body. He got back to his feet and ran, passing people who had taken refuge behind boulders. Determined to live, he called to anyone who could hear him to follow his voice to hurry to the riverbank. He thought that if they could reach the riverbanks and wet themselves in water and mud, they might survive. On the other hand, the way the wind carried the flames, he feared that they might have to wade out into deeper water and risk drowning in the current. The flames lapped at their heels. Father Pernan briefly wondered if Judgment Day had come to Peshtigo. When he reached the river, relief swept over him to see people had already collected on the banks. Unfortunately, few were in the water. Most stood in place, confused. Others stared at the sky, crying. They asked him if this was their judgment. To them, there simply wouldn't be any reason to get into the water if God had sent the fire. 
and the father's words of assurance that this was not the end of the world seemed lost on most of them. He began pushing them into the water. Some were angry and complained bitterly about being soaked. Immersion in water is better than immersion in fire, he shouted back. As the fire continued to approach, he grabbed a few of the townspeople and dragged them to deeper water. The flames were so intense he could feel the heat of it, even through his wet, heavy clothes. The wind carried pieces of fiery debris across the river, setting aflame the dry leaves and felled trees there. Embers floated toward them, catching several people's dry hair and clothes on fire. On shore, people refused to get in the water. They insisted that if God wanted them to die by fire, they would obey. All he could do was call out to them in the hopes that follow him and the others into the river. With the heat so intense, survival instincts took over, and they began to jump in and swim away from the shoreline. Within a matter of minutes, the fire reached the riverbanks. If they'd waited any longer, they would have died. A mother held her young child by the hand. As she checked the blanket in her arms, she screamed. The blanket was empty. In the chaos, the baby she had swaddled inside had slipped from her arms as they ran toward the river. Those who'd made it this far swam or waited until only their heads were above the water. While that much should have granted them protection, it did not. Flames streaked across the riverbanks. Father Pernan's fear of the air catching fire seemed to have come true. The townspeople continually dunked their heads to keep their hair from catching fire. The temperature felt like hell itself. Anyone standing up out of the water risked their hair or clothing catching. The water grew thick with people and animals, and those who couldn't swim drowned. By midnight, nothing existed on the riverbanks. The entire forest on both sides was engulfed in fire. Father Pernan looked toward the heavens, only to see flames where the moon and stars had once been. The phenomenon Pernan described has rarely been survivable. Experts say the firestorm created something akin to a hurricane of fire, with winds reaching a hundred miles an hour, and the people in the river were in the eye of it. The inferno had created a vortex, sucking the smoke higher into the sky, leaving the air below bright with flames. For five and a half hours, the survivors stayed in the water. When the fires subsided, they bathed their way back to the shore. They huddled together on the riverbank. Wet, hungry, injured, they waited for the earth to cool down enough for them to return to what was once home. On the outer fringes of town, rescue teams from nearby found blackened posts, the fences they'd once held gone, and iron railroad tracks bent and twisted. Nothing of the trains endured except for their boilers. All that remained of the church was a ball of melted metal that had once been the bell inside the steeple. They discovered the bodies of a family of five. Having no chance of escape, it appeared the father had cut his wife and children's throats, and then taken his own life rather than have them burned to death. In the area where the town tavern had stood, they found the remains of some 200 people, they stumbled over the scorched earth toward an open area where houses, barns, and trees had once stood. The fire had burned so hot that sand had turned to glass. Not a single tree remained. Holes and divots were the only clues of where they had grown. 
The fire had reduced the roots to ash. Beneath their feet lay a trail of corpses so charred that identification was impossible. In some cases, the bone fragments were indistinguishable from those of animals. The survivors, those few who could still walk, made their way toward the search teams. Most were barely clothed, many burned. All were sooty, wet, and traumatized. They'd survived the unsurvivable. Others stayed on the shore, their lungs still struggling, their throats swollen from breathing hot air and ash. Many who had kept their eyes open were blind, some permanently. Thick smoke lingered in the sky, eclipsing the sun. It would be days before sunshine broke through. More rescue teams arrived from the town of Marinette. They took the most injured to their hospital and housed the less critical in homes and hotels. Over the coming days and weeks, many died from their injuries and sustained smoke inhalation. Many who did survive suffered permanent heart, lung, skin, or eye damage. Eventually, they returned to Peshtigo and rebuilt. They did their best to collect the dead. Without knowing who was who, or even if they were burying people or animals, the townfolk decided on a single burial site and service. A few logging and lumber businesses reinvested in Peshtigo, and the town never re-emerged as the epicenter it had once been. Father Pernin survived, and even found some of the valuables he'd buried were recoverable. Today, they can be seen in the Peshtigo Fire Museum. He wrote a memoir about the events of October 8th and 9th of 1871. First published in his native French, it was translated to English, and remains an important part of the fire's history. He titled it, The Finger of God is There. While the town rebuilt their church, Parnon moved on to Minnesota, where he spent decades working with several churches, eventually becoming the vicar general, the local diocese's highest office after the bishop. In his later years, after retirement from the church, he became the resident chaplain of St. Mary's, now known as the Mayo Clinic. Today, the small town of Peshtigo is home to just over 3,500 people. The Peshtigo Fire consumed 1.3 million acres, about 2,400 square miles. Historians think over a billion trees were likely destroyed. The fire cut a swath through the forest, 10 miles wide and 40 miles long. 17 additional towns suffered damage and loss of life, though Peshtigo suffered the most. The fire burned so hot, it leveled the town to ash in just two hours. Of the estimated 1,200 residents, 800 died that night alone. However, records indicate that another 1,200 railroad workers had arrived the day before, putting the population at 2,400. And even that number didn't account for the travelers and businessmen who passed through regularly. As Father Pernin pointed out, the town never had an accurate population count. Researchers have pieced together information that suggests up to 2,500 people may have died from the fire that swept through Peshtigo and nearby towns. Throughout 1871, wildfires were reported across the Midwest. Michigan reported several large wildfires that year, with an additional death toll of around 500. But despite all that, you might be asking why you haven't heard of the Peshtigo fire before. Well, as it turns out, 
just 250 miles south on that very same night, another fire started that stole all the headlines. The Great Chicago Fire, in which 300 people perished. Newspapers were quick to report about a disaster in a booming metropolitan city over a rural logging community. The damage to property and the economy in Chicago came to some 200 million. Pashtigos came close at nearly 170 million, but even that didn't stoke the media's interest. When word did break out, most of the help had already been sent to Chicago, leaving Pashtigo to fend for itself. There was a story of a cow owned by one Mrs. O'Leary kicking over a lantern and starting the Chicago fire, but it was later debunked. Years afterward, the reporter who wrote the story admitted to fabricating the tale. So what did start so many fires across the Midwest in 1871? The upper Midwest had had an unusually dry and hot season. Added to that, people had become careless about storing dry goods. As for the Peshtigo fire, their method of harvesting timber and their lack of good forestry practices were also to blame. Father Pernan admitted he was bitter about the attention the Chicago fire received and how Peshtigo's survivors were mostly overlooked. Not by everyone, though. Frances Fairchild, the wife of Wisconsin Governor Lucius Fairchild, was about to come to Peshtigo's aid. Frances was aboard a train heading to Chicago. When she learned it was yet another train full of food and other provisions slated for the victims of the Chicago fire, she ordered the train stopped and had the provisions allocated to Peshtigo instead. She also coordinated a blanket and bedding drive for the families. To this day, the Peshtigo fire remains the deadliest fire in American history. The death toll makes it the second largest of all natural disasters in American history, behind only the Galveston hurricane in 1900. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. The earthquake hit an hour before sunrise and lasted a mere 60 seconds. Though short, the 6.6 quake registered as the biggest to hit California in 80 years, exceeded only by the San Francisco earthquake in 1906 and the quake that struck Long Beach in 1933. Still, to the people living in the San Fernando area on February 9th of 1971, the quake was catastrophic. The earth shook so violently that bridges were flattened, highways collapsed, and power stations toppled over. Downed power lines sparked fires. The earthquake traveled along the 12-mile fault zone under the San Gabriel Mountains at 6.01 a.m. Startled from their sleep, people took cover as their homes rattled and shook. The destruction continued to Los Angeles, where freeways crumbled, sewer lines burst, and gas lines exploded, causing more fires. Phone lines went out too, making it impossible for residents to call for help. In San Fernando, nurse Betty Vendicar was just signing off for the night at the Veterans Administration Hospital. Tired from a long overnight shift, Betty just wanted to go home. When the quake hit, the entire Ward 5 building and its inhabitants disappeared into the cold and dark morning. Betty never forgot the sight or the sound. The building groaned and rumbled, then buckled and caved in. Built in 1926, the concrete wasn't reinforced. Forty-four bodies were recovered from the wreckage. 
Miraculously, a thousand people made it out alive when the nearby six-story psychiatric ward at Olive View Community Hospital collapsed. Only three people were killed. Three more hospitals suffered severe damage. Buildings fell onto roadways and overhead bridges collapsed onto the roads below. When the quake stopped and the dust settled, 2,500 people were injured and 64 were dead, nine from heart attacks. The monetary damage exceeded just over 550 million. For weeks afterwards, survivors were left without water, gas, and power. One resident recalled using camping gear for five weeks. He considered himself lucky. Other families had none of those amenities. The Salvation Army arrived with food, but residents were on their own when it came to shelter. The reservoir keeper for the Lower San Fernando Dam tried to get out of bed to check on his family when the quake struck, though he could barely walk. When the tremors subsided, he drove to the dam. To his horror, he found a crack and alerted his superiors. The earthen dam had partially liquefied, and the top 30 feet of the structure had crumbled. The San Fernando Dam held 3.6 billion gallons of water. Directly below the dam were highly populated areas. Seismologists and employees held their breath. With every aftershock, chunks of earth fell away, bringing the water table closer to the top of the dam. Police fanned out over nine square miles from the reservoir to Ventura Highway in an attempt to warn the residents to evacuate. Employees did their best to shore up the cracks while strong winds sent waves crashing along the rim. Fortunately, the dam held. If it hadn't, seismologists estimate 120,000 people would have drowned. Even today, no one knows why the dam didn't collapse, which would have made the earthquake the worst natural disaster in American history. Seismologists conclude that had the quake lasted for another five to 10 seconds, history would have been significantly different. The twisted railroads and collapsed roadways made recovery long and difficult. Out of the rubble came changes, though. The Reconstruction spurred new laws, and Congress introduced new bills that established a national earthquake research program. Though the quake wasn't what Californians refer to as the big one, it had been a call to action that the nation didn't ignore. Previously, no one had paid much attention to seismic activity. When newer buildings and roadways collapsed in the earthquake, it served as a wake-up call to city engineers and developers. Solid concrete, they found out, wasn't flexible enough to withstand tremors and aftershocks. They also realized that building homes on top of fault lines didn't end well. Quakes ruptured the surface, ripping through lawns and houses. Six years later, in 1977, the Earthquake Hazards Reduction Act passed, helping to establish current earthquake safety standards. When it comes to quakes, at least, it seems society has learned to pay attention to the warning signs. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.